I so appreciated Brittany and Tyler welcoming me into their home for an Orange Socks interview about their son Max, who had multiple issues that were detected in utero. Some of Max's diagnoses included hydrocephalus, encephalocele, and amniotic band syndrome. Max lived five weeks after he was born, and his life greatly affected Brittany and Tyler, whose faith helped them put Max's situation into a grander perspective. Brittany and Tyler, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy lives to sit down with me for an Orange Sox interview. I'm honored. Thank you. Brittany, when did you find out that uh, your son, Max, had issues and he had several diagnoses, including hydrocephalus, encephalocele, and, and others. Uh, when did you find out that he had uh, some issues? So it was our 20-week ultrasound. We had had a 16-week for the gender reveal to find out it was a boy, but we didn't see any problems at that ultrasound. Um, he was probably just still too small to really notice and not on the kind of ultrasound that they do, like they do at maternal fetal medicine. For my doctor's office, my OB's office, they send you to maternal fetal medicine. They call it the big 20-week ultrasound, and we were so excited. We've struggled for years to conceive, and we'd had a miscarriage prior to Max, and so we were just so excited to finally get to this point in a pregnancy, and we knew lots of people who'd had those 20-week ultrasounds. We had seen the year before our sister-in-law's, the video, and so we knew what it was going to be, and we were so excited, and we went in, and we were just so wrapped up in, oh, you can see all of his toes and his fingers, and this is so exciting, and he was moving, and it was really great. And looking back now, I can see her hesitation as she was doing the ultrasound, and I can kind of notice the problems. When I was in the moment, I was just so excited, and I remember when she was done and she took the wand away, but she didn't wipe off my belly. She didn't clear off the ultrasound gel and she just put her hand really gently on my arm and I just got this sick feeling. And she just said, I'm not gonna wipe the gel off because I'm gonna need Dr. Andrus to come in and do a more thorough look. She's like, I don't wanna take you by surprise, so I want to let you know now that I see a lot of problems. And she said, and I wanna give you that warning, I'm gonna have to go see him and talk to him and then I'll bring the doctor back in. She's like, but it'll be a little bit, so you'll just have to wait here. And then she left us alone in the room and we racked our brains, you know, what could we have seen that was wrong? We didn't see anything wrong and we were terrified. And so Dr. Andrus came back in and he brought another nurse with him and she, thank goodness, transcribed everything for us because the laundry list was so long and there were so many things. And they listed off, they showed us as they did the ultrasound, they kind of went over the things with us. They started at the bottom at least one clubbed foot, but the way he was positioned, it was hard to tell were they seeing one foot or both feet. And so at least one clubbed foot, and then they worked their way up. His heart, we're not sure what's wrong with it, but it's definitely mispositioned. There's something not right about it. And then the back of his head, because we never saw the front of him. He wouldn't turn around, which we found out later the reason why there was for that. He had this meningocele encephalocele. We can't quite tell based on its position. Basically a fluid-filled sac at the base of his cerebellum, top of his spine. Then in his head, ventriculum magli. So the fluid in his head was twice the volume that it should be um, in your head. And, and explained to us, we 
don't see any brain matter. That's not to say there isn't any, but it's not visible to us through this ultrasound. And they tried their best to get into switch positions. I jumped up and down for a little bit. They pushed around. They tried to get him to move and they couldn't get him to change positions because they wanted to see his face. They wanted to know, does he have a cleft lip and palate? That would help us know a little more. How would all these things connect? Because none of these things seem to match. And they had given us a list of possibilities. He might have the name of the... Spina bifida? Spina bifida, thank you. They didn't know, you know, he might have a very rare, um, serious form of spina bifida. We don't know. So they gave us all this information. Dr. Anders was very helpful and he just said, you know, I know this is a lot of information for you guys to take in at once. And so he kind of gave us that and gave us this list that they had written out for us to kind of go over some things. And he just said, we're gonna need a lot of appointments with you to figure some things out. He said, I want you to try to come back on Monday. Let's see if over the weekend he'll change positions and we can get a look at his face or a better look at his head or stuff like that. So he said, you know, to go home this weekend. And he said, and I'm also gonna call and email colleagues that I have at the University of Utah and at Primary Children's and see if anyone can help me out with this. These are some rare and extreme circumstances that I don't see very often. And the last thing that they discussed with us was as they were looking around at him and trying to figure out how does all this play together, they noticed some stringy like substances around Max and they were discussing together, the nurse and the doctor, and saying, what do you think those are? Do you think those are amniotic bands? And our doctor, who had been practicing for who knows how long, probably 30 years, said, I have seen children born who I know had results of amniotic bands after birth, meaning they would have maybe some like rubber band marks or maybe some appendages that had been taken off, but he had never seen an amniotic band on an ultrasound before. And that's what he assumed they were. He explained that amniotic bands are fibers that break off from the amniotic sac. Kind of described it like plastic bags getting stuck around fish in the ocean. I mean, it would cut off circulation basically to that area. And so based on what he could see, he thought maybe these have wrapped around early enough in development that it has caused these problems. He said, but I can't be sure. Well, you know, he said, let's work one step at a time. We might need to do an amniocentesis to find out, is there a chromosome problem? Can we diagnose him with something? Can we figure out what we're looking at? Because of course our first question was, is he gonna die? Can he live with this? Is he gonna be born alive? All those things, and he couldn't answer. So he asked us to come back on Monday. So we came back on Monday and we came back on Wednesday and we continued to come back as they would try to get him to turn around and they could never get him to turn around. We found out later after he was born that one of the amniotic browns was actually grafted into his cheek and was holding him directly into my cervix. It was wrapped up so he was... So he couldn't turn around. He was stuck in that position, poor little guy. And so he was actually born with this cute little whisker. They had to cut it to release him when he was born. And so for the first probably week before it dried and fell off, he had this little whisker that stuck out of his cheek and it was pretty cute. <laughs> but yeah, that was when we found out everything that was going on with him. Boy, what were your thoughts? We were terrified and we were heartbroken. We had wanted a baby for so long and after our miscarriage at 12 weeks with our first baby, we just thought, oh, if you can get past that mark, then you're golden. And so we felt so good after 
that three month mark, we felt like, oh, then everything's gonna be fine. And 16 weeks, we found out was a boy. We didn't expect ever for that to be coming. And it was so much information to take at once. And we were really scared, but we also remember when they left us in the room before they were gonna let us go, they gave us some time to just get our stuff together and get ready to leave. And we both looked at each other and I remember distinctly Tyler saying to me, I know we're both really scared, but don't you feel really peaceful? And I said, yeah. And he said, I don't know what's gonna happen, but it's gonna be okay. And I just remember feeling that way that we were gonna be okay and that there was this sense of peace that we felt like comforted in that moment of knowing that no matter what was gonna happen, something was gonna work out and we were gonna be okay. So he was born. Mm -hmm. How long did he live? He lived for five weeks. Five weeks. Tell me about those five weeks. It was amazing. After that 20 week, appointment of course it was weekly appointments mris meeting with neurosurgeons and neurologists and cardiologists and everyone trying to give us the best chance and figure out what we were going to do we were given two options because we needed to find out if he was compatible with life um, we went ahead and we did an amniocentesis so that we could find out if he would be compatible with life and what they found in that was that he was there was no chromosome problems and so based on that, we decided to deliver at the U so that he could be transported directly to primary children's right after he was born. Had he not been, we could have just delivered at our local hospital and just been able to just relax and have him for however long we could have him. But we decided since he was compatible with life to give it our best shot and to go ahead and deliver there. So a couple weeks before he was born, he was born six weeks early. We had started having non-stress tests and they started to notice that he was under distress and the fluid in his brain was significantly increasing in volume very quickly. And so our doctor went back and forth. Every time I'd come in, he would say, okay, maybe not today. And he would just say, get ready, because I'm just gonna probably make a last minute decision when it's time for him to be born. He said, I'm just, I'm desperate for you guys to have him. I don't wanna wait too long and have him be stillborn. And I don't wanna take him too early, you know, not give him a chance. So. We had less than 24 hours notice that we were gonna have him. I had to go back after an appointment, go back to work and say, I'm collecting my things, I will not be coming back. <laughs> and we had to go down to the hospital the next morning and we went to the U and he was born via C-section to give him the best chance they did not wanna risk for him or myself a vaginal delivery. So he was born. Um, he was immediately resuscitated after birth because he was not breathing when he was born and then he was taken to the university NICU. And then um, I was taken back to my room. I had yet to see him. Tyler had been able to see him. They brought him in right as they were pulling him out. And he was there to give the permission to resuscitate him. And they had allowed Tyler to go to the University of Utah NICU to see him. So he got to go in there and check on him. And then he came back to check on me and they said, if he's stable enough, we'll bring him by your room before we take him to primaries. And I was hopeful that he would be. And so they did, they brought him in his incubator by my room and I got to meet him for the first time. And it was probably like two hours after he was born, do you mm -hmm. think? Yeah. yeah, he was in the NICU for a while trying to get him stable. Yeah. 
So yeah, after a few hours, they brought him to my room. And that was amazing. It was everything we'd been waiting for for two years. And they brought him in to me and I sat up. They brought him closer to me and they opened up the little like hand door and let me reach in and to touch him. And he opened his, he had, oh, one of the other things, he had his one tiny eye. He had one dysplastic eye, they called it. So one eye was small and undeveloped. And so he really wouldn't open that one very much. So he just would wink at you all the time. And so he opened his one good eye at me. And then he squeezed his hand around my finger and I was had. He was so amazing and I just couldn't believe that he was here and that he was alive. And our families were there. My parents had left as soon as we told them I was gonna be having a C-section. They drove from Arizona to get there and it was amazing. And they, tr and they transported him to primaries, to the NICU. And every day was something new. Every day was a new, experience. Um, one of the first things they did for him was an MRI. They had done an MRI while I was pregnant, but of course an MRI of, of him was not the best picture. So the first thing they did was an MRI so that they could tell us what we were really dealing with as far as um, brain matter and what he had. Within a couple of days, I think, they gave us the results of his MRI and they showed us the pictures and that he had hardly any brain matter had developed. There was a little strip in the front. Yeah, they compared it to bacon. Yeah. It was just a little strip of bacon. A little strip of bacon in the front and a little strip on the side, not even really a full strip. And then the most concerning part was that his brainstem was missing its most key parts. And they explained to us that those are your most basic human functions come from your brainstem, your breathing, your swallowing, any of those things and so they explained to us without that there's no way he'll ever be able to do those things on his own and we knew going into it that there wasn't we didn't know how long we would have him if we'd ever bring him home for any point but we were hopeful that we could at least have some time with him so we went ahead and made some decisions to try to extend our time with him as best we could so the first thing we did was they um, performed his first neurosurgery when he was like a five, week, five days. Five days old? Yeah. Five days old. They performed their first neurosurgery to relieve some of that fluid. They did not do a shunt at that time. They did. It was experimental basically. It's yeah. a fluid line that they put in his head and they have to balance the fluid to a beaker. So the fluid will flow out, but not too quickly or not as fast enough. And yeah. So it's very interesting procedure. And that's one of the perks of being at the U yeah. is that they could do those life-saving things that you can't do at McKaydee. Yeah. Mm. Their idea was we need to see if we remove the fluid, will it stay or will it continue to produce? And so they tried that first and the fluid began to go down. His little light bulb alien-shaped head began to become the shape of a normal baby's head. After a couple of days after they had done that and the fluid had started to go down and he had stabilized, they let us hold him finally for the first time. I remember we went in that day and we sat down and we were asking the nurse how he was doing and she said, well, do you want to hold him? And I immediately started bawling <laughs> and I was like, 
yeah, I can hold him. You're going to let me hold him? And she said, yeah, I don't see why not. I asked the neurosurgeon and they said, you know, we can let you hold him for 15 minutes. <laughs> and so I got 15 minutes that day. Um, they let us hold him. And that was amazing. I didn't know if I would ever get to hold him. And to be able to do that was incredible. Just to be near him was the most amazing feeling in the world. He was so strong and he was so mighty and just the power in his presence was remarkable and he was such a fighter. And so I got to hold him and then the next day they let Tyler hold him. After that, it was just kind of hit or miss here and there, but we could hold him for just small 15 to 30 minute spurts depending on how well he was doing that day. They had him intubated, of course, he couldn't breathe on his own. So they would kind of turn the machines up and down here and there to see how he would do. And sometimes he would breathe over them, which was beyond any of their comprehension and ours. And sometimes they would have to turn him up significantly. He would need a lot of support. Eventually, they did the surgery to put in a shunt and they explained to us everything we knew. Every surgery was, if we don't do this, he'll die, but this surgery could kill him. And so our hope was always that we could get a little bit longer with him. And so we did. And when we did the second surgery, they put in the shunt to help just make him comfortable. And right after they put in the shunt, he started to get an infection from the shunt site in his abdomen. And it started to get really red and inflamed. And we got really worried. He got really sick for a couple of days. And they warned us, you know, he could get meningitis from this shunt. And if we, he does, that'll be the end of it and they did the antibiotic and within a couple days he was back to himself and he was happy and he was doing good again and he was even starting to breathe over his machine and the main head doctor was talking about extubating him and we were excited and terrified because we didn't know how he could be extubated. They said he'd never breathe on his own and that was amazing. And so they tried and then he started to get sick again and they started to turn up the supports more. And finally, we came in one Monday morning and they sat us down and explained to us that they had done another blood draw and had revealed that his body was full of infection again and that he was developing meningitis and there was nothing they could do. There was no more they could do and that they would guide us with whatever we needed and we could make whatever arrangements we wanted. And when we were ready to turn the machines off, we could. and we were allowed to do that. And that was when he was exactly five weeks old. So he never made it out of the hospital. He was there the no. entire time. Mm -hmm. And so when you interacted with him, you would go to the hospital and, mm -hmm. and to interact. That uh, was probably very difficult uh, to have to do. And with a litany of treatments and litany of issues that he had. Tell me about the joys. There were so many. There were so many, uh, despite all the hard things, that's what we always tell people is despite all the hard things, there were so many good moments and good days. Like when he would open his one eye at us and we'd call it when he'd be winking at us or the first time he ever opened his tiny eye. The first time we ever saw that was when his daddy was holding him. <laughs> the first day that Tyler held him, he opened both his eyes. He'd always open both of his eyes when I'd hold him. It was, it was neat. That time was one of my favorites. Our other favorite one we always say was we had to be gone for a couple of days. I had 
reached the point of severe exhaustion. Having been there all day, every day, and still recovering from my C-section, Tyler basically had to carry me out of the hospital one night. I could hardly walk. And so we decided to come home and rest for a day. Then we had a, a snowstorm, there was a blizzard, and we couldn't get down to Salt Lake. It was, the roads were too bad, and at the time we had a very old car that couldn't make it, and so we missed two full days, and that was extremely difficult. And during that time, I had also, you go through this time, parents in the NICU can totally relate, I'm sure. Does my baby know who I am? Does he know I'm his mom? I'm not there all the time. He hears tons of voices. We didn't know if he could even see. We knew that the one eye for sure he couldn't see out of, and the doctors were never sure if he was blind in both. I just thought, does he even know that I'm there? Does he know who I am? And I desperately wanted to know, you know, does he really know me and his dad? And so when it, the snow finally cleared and the roads were good, we hurried down to the hospital and I'll never forget, we ran into the room and we immediately asked the nurse, how's he doing today, you know? And she started to laugh and she said, well, come over here and ask him. And as soon as he heard our voices, he started kicking and, I always get teary thinking about it. <laughs> he started kicking and punching his fists in the air and he had this huge smile on his face and he was so happy to see us and we need overexert. He had this little air leak <laughs> in his tube, and so he'd make this little squeaky noise. <laughs> and he was squeaking at us, and he was so happy. And that was such a special and important moment for me to know that he definitely knew who we were, and he had missed us, and that he identified us. And that was so special for me because it was only the next week that we lost him. And that was something I desperately needed to know before he was gone. And you know, there's something so special about being near a child with special needs for us, with our faith and our faith in God. We just felt like we were in the presence of someone so mighty and so special with spirit and he, was just, it was just like being in heaven to be near him. And no amount of loss and heartache could ever take away that joy that he gave us. And our gratitude for being able to have five weeks that we really never should have had. I mean, everything that they told us and realizing how really his body he should have i mean the neurologist kept saying to us he shouldn't even be able to breathe let alone move and he moves and all these things and we just couldn't believe it and it was just remarkable and there's nothing that could take that away if i were to come to you with a child with similar diagnosis what advice would you give me i feel like I would say get ready for so much surprise and as much joy as there is heartache and to embrace it. For us, prayer was significant. Being able to rely on our Heavenly Father was the only way we felt like we could make it through and to just Put your faith also in that little child. And I feel like 
they have so much strength in them. And that's what we felt like. Our Max had so much strength in him and he fought so hard to stay with us and to be here with us. And that was really amazing. But yeah, I mean, I, I just feel like it's worth it. It's a hard experience, but it's okay. And you'll be okay no matter what happens. Don't give up and don't lose hope. I feel like just love the time that you have because there were days that I was dreading it. There were days, of course, that I was caught up in how sad it was and how I wished that that wasn't the case. And there were friends of ours having babies at that time that were taking their babies home. And my baby wasn't home and someone else was taking care of my baby for me. And I would get caught up in that. And then there were days that I would try to sit back and remember, you know, he's still here and I'm here and that's all we need. And to just try to have that attitude, to not let the bad days get you down. There were a couple of days where we felt just numb. Didn't know what to think, didn't know what to do, but you always just look back on those positive experiences he was always defying what the doctor said, which kind of made us laugh. <laughs> so like, he won't recognize you. We came in and he recognized us. He won't squeeze your hands. He's, he's not mobile. He would wiggle around and they like, had to put bumpers up so he wouldn't roll off the bed. <laughs> and like, just different things like that. So it was like those little positive experiences that helped us kind of get out of that numb feeling. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Any final thoughts or words? Don't give up yeah. and don't lose hope know that they're never going to stop being your child even after you've lost them and that if you do lose them you will be okay very good thank you both thank you. it's awesome to meet you and hear your story